Hello, I'm Leslie Sheldon, and I'm director of Cheltenham International Film Festival. I'm very pleased to tell you that we will be closing the film festival with Stephen Cookson's social comedy called Brighton. Brighton stars Phil Davis, Marion Bailey, Leslie Sharp, and Larry Lamb. And it's about a memory lane trip to Brighton, which goes disastrously wrong. It's based on a play by the legendary Stephen Burkhoff, and it's a British film which should not be missed. Brighton will be available to watch from the 5th of June, which is our closing day, but you will have seven days to watch it. And I would recommend getting your tickets as soon as possible. You can get tickets if you go to our website, www.cheltfilm.com. To build your anticipation for this excellent film, you're about to hear an interview hosted by At The Flicks podcast team with the film's director, Stephen Cookson, about the making of the film and the social relevance of Brighton. Enjoy the interview and the upcoming screening as part of Cheltenham International Film Festival. I will now hand you over to the At The Flicks team. Hello and welcome to a very special interview from your At The Flicks team. Today, we have the great pleasure in talking to British writer, director, and producer Stephen Cookson. Stephen is the creative force behind such wonderful British films as Journey to the Moon, Stanley, A Man of Variety, Stephen Burkhoff's A Telltale Heart, and Brighton. I didn't come here to watch the film. Me neither. Now everything's changed. And we haven't. Don't you get up to any naughtiness. Remember when we used to go to the picture us? Things we used to get up to in the dark. Don't be a dirty bastard. I mean, with you, you daft man. <laughs> you won't have the news of the world in the house. You're joking. That's a good read, Dad. You two are such prats. <whistles> All right, girls! God made women, so why should they be upset about showing a bit of what they've got? He must have been working overtime when he made the... <laughs> That was right out of order. No, that, that was is. out of order, Dave. Sorry, I took the right diabolical liberty there. Hello, Stephen, and welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hello, very well. Thank you for having me. Oh, no, no. Thank you very much for uh, for coming on. I mean, it's a very busy time for you, isn't it? It has been, yes. It's, it's, been, uh, it's been full on this year so far. Yeah. And that's with lockdown, but we'll yeah. come on and talk about that in a minute. So the first thing that struck me when I was looking through your filmography is You've produced every film you've directed, so you've taken on that double challenge each time. What attracts you to taking on both roles? Well, it's they're quite different roles. I mean, I also write as well, as you probably know, and they're really three different roles. So what tends to happen is I'll get an idea for a script, and then you know that'll take about a year to write it. And then when I first started, I would then send a script to various companies to try and get it financed or to get a development deal. And that would always take years of waiting. So after that process, I just thought, well, I may as well produce myself. And then I did it quite successfully on the first film. And so that that's just followed throughout the whole of my career, really, that I've always produced films that I want to make, you know, that I've written. And then obviously, once you've produced them, you sort of stop doing that and then get into the directing. So it's never really worried me doing these three jobs because they're, they're all quite different. So being a producer, does that take the pressure off you as a director? 
I don't think so particularly. Uh, I mean, it, I mean, I've got a, a producing partner, Peter Keegan, you know, we, so we produce together and we'll have a line producer, you know, and a production manager. So there's quite a lot of people in, in the production department. It makes you more wary uh, if you're the producer as well as the director about budgetary constraints and logistics. So I think I'm probably quite a good director to work with because I've always got this other hat on <laughs> thinking about, you know, well, we can't do that because we can't afford it or we can't, you know, overrun in this location because we've got to be so-and-so the next day. Whereas other directors that are just completely creative don't have any conception of those types of things. Yeah, we've spoken to a couple and they use their assistant directors to almost become that buffer between themselves and the producer. Yes, yeah, I, I know that happens, yeah. So no, I have a good relationship with with you know with my with my producing partner and the team. So um, no, it, it just works really well, I think. So going back to the to the present and, and looking at these films, and obviously we're still in a not quite a lockdown phase, but you know we're we're slowly coming out of it, and hopefully we'll stay out of it. And I'm touching wood as I say that. We've spoken to many people in the film and TV world recently, and this coronavirus has impacted on their plans. Has it affected you in any way? Yeah, yes, it did. I mean, to be fair, we were actually in full pre-production uh, with our next film over Christmas and the New Year. So January, February, we were in full pre-production. Um, and then, you know, we heard obviously about the, the, the breakout in China in February or whenever it was. And so, yes, so we had to halt production on our film in March. So it, it stopped that going ahead. And then, you know, we lost all the actors, we lost the financing, we lost the distribution. So it's it's like a stack of cards making a film. So that that was really disappointing. But then as all these things happened for a reason, I then got interested in developing some other scripts. So for the whole period of the lockdown, I've really just been writing, you know, with a couple of other people and then also doing the post-production on Louisa, uh, which is the animation film we're going to talk about. So, so for me, it's been quite a productive six months. And yes, it did initially affect us, but, you know, we just got involved in doing some other things, really. That's excellent. You know, not excellent you were impacted in that way, but <laughs> you were able to develop other projects. But also with Brighton, it's now coming out in April 2021, but initially I believe there was an earlier release date for it? Yeah, there was. I mean, again, we were talking about it probably was going to be the autumn of this year, so fairly imminently, but that was going to be after it had been to some film festivals because it's that type of film, you know. So, But because all the film festivals were cancelled, that's really put it back probably a six-month or a year. I mean, it may not come out in April now because there's no interest from festivals, and we like doing those to just build up a bit of awareness about the films and do some interviews and get the actors, you know, on local radio and TV, etc. So, yeah, Brighton has certainly been delayed because of the pandemic well let's stick with brighton for the moment then and i've seen the trailer but before i say anything about it do you want to tell our listeners what brighton's actually about yes of course yeah well it's it's about a group of four east enders from london who haven't been to brighton for many many years and it's where they first met uh, in their sort of late teens early 20s and they just decide to go down for a day trip uh, to sort of you know reminisce and have some ice cream and you know have a chat and get a bit of sun and they go down there and what they realize through the story is how much Brighton has changed and 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 we see how they haven't changed so it's quite interesting to sort of see them out out of their the comfort zone of East London and what they come up against with uh, the locals down there and and their little local haunts and all the places that they remember and how everything's changed that's really what it's about is there's there's lots of subplots going on as well but ultimately it's just it's just a view of these characters 
and how they cope with society of today. And it's based on Stephen Burkhoff's play, Brighton Beach Scumbags. I can see why you changed the title for the cinema. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I I love the title, but then, you know, we took it to a couple of distributors and they sort of explained to us that people don't understand the word scumbag in Spain, you know, or or America. And and also the, the play that Stephen wrote was quite short. I think it was only, I don't know, about 25 pages. It was about half an hour. And obviously, this is a full-length film, so we thought we should probably distinguish it and call it something else. And you've worked with Stephen before. There's Shakespeare's Heroes and Villains and Stephen Burkhoff's Telltale Heart. So you yeah. clearly got that strong working relationship there. What is it about working with Stephen you like? Uh, well, I mean, I think he's extremely talented. I mean, he's such an amazing individual and being a really accomplished actor and writer and director himself you know for somebody like my me working with somebody of that caliber is absolutely fantastic so yeah i just like working with him and as you say we we'd made these two other films one was a documentary about shakespeare and the other was a was an edgar Allan poe sort of gothic uh, horror film and i just said to him after we'd finished that have you got anything else and he he's launched into this rendition of brighton beach scumbags at this restaurant we were doing and i just thought it was absolutely hilarious Oh, that and, must have um, been something to see. Yeah. <laughs> well, he did all the characters with full, and there's quite a lot of swearing in the play. There's a bit less <laughs> than me in the film. But you can imagine, we were in actually quite a posh restaurant in, in London, and he was effing and blinding throughout the, <laughs> <laughs> the rendition. Uh, but I was in fits of laughter, obviously, and because they're so coarse. These characters are so, so rude and coarse. But it's just how they speak. You know, they're not meaning to be rude. Yeah, so he did that, and I loved the idea, and I said, would you mind if I developed it into a film? And obviously he was very flattered. And then sort of a year later, we ended up filming it. So that's how it came about. So when you were developing it, are there any elements that original play, and obviously all that swearing that you and Melanie Harris changed with the screen? No, Melanie and I wanted to be respectful to the play. So what we ended up doing was the core story of the older people going down to Brighton really remains the same. The main thing I did actually was taking out about 500 swear words. Um, <laughs> <laughs> once we'd taken wow. out, yeah, once we'd take, maybe not 500, but you know, <laughs> it was a fair amount. And, th- and then what Melanie and I did in order to make it into the length of a feature, we decided the best way to do that was to show the characters when they first met and sort of the innocence of the fifties and the sixties so it it really shows how these characters have changed in that time. So in their older selves, they're in their late 60s, early 70s, are they? Or that's right. Or they are. No, they are. That's right. I mean, you know, people like Larry Lamb and Phil Davis, I think, are genuinely in their late 60s. So we thought we'd keep it, you know, realistic right. to their age. But the themes, and I know the play was written in the, in the 90s, but the themes of, you know, accepting or not accepting the changes in society and the way values have gone, I mean, that is so relevant for Britain today, particularly, you know, we've still got the whole Brexit thing going on. You know, the bits that I've seen, it just seems to capture that perfectly. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, when, when we when we had a few screenings at the end of last year and a couple of journalists came along and they said absolutely what you said, they said this is absolutely for now. And particularly because we made it last year when Brexit was going on, you know, it felt very much capturing the, the, the moment and, and as you say it continues this year with the pandemic and black lives matter and all this sort of thing and tolerance with people and and all that so no it's even though as you said Stephen wrote it some time ago it's very very topical as it is at the moment 
do you have sympathy for these characters or do you find them because of those values frustrating no i do have sympathy because i think it, you know because stephen explained where they came from they were all based on people that he knew in stepney green and uh, you know whitechapel area they were all, all market traders and but when we first started rehearsing it you know, we, we were discussing, are they just trying to be rude for the sake of being rude and, and just being real assholes? And and we sort of realized it isn't. They're, they're not doing it on purpose. They just have this banter, you know, like people do on a market or anybody is in a job place, you know. So we, we realized that they were just people with families and with sons and daughters and wives. And, and it's just how they speak. And you know, I mean, we all know people who are probably older than us who are possibly a little bit racist and a little bit homophobic, but they can't help it because that's how they were brought up and that's mm. really what we were trying to say in this film you know i mean they are everything obic <laughs> you know yeah, yeah, yeah. everything so yeah. you know but but again they're not really doing it on purpose it's just because it's how they're brought up and, and that's how they are so and by the end of the film i hope it, there's a real message of of hope uh, you know i mean we showed the film in germany and we were really worried how it would go down over there but they loved it and they completely got what we were trying to say that people do change and at the end when the characters get in their car and drive back to london you really think well hopefully this day has changed them and and they're going to be more open minded oh i really want to see this so is it's is the interaction just within the group or is it things that happen to them and outside influences that changes their opinion i mean you now i'm fascinated now <laughs> we know it is it's the people that they meet i mean they do yeah. have a lot of banter between them usually on the deck chairs but yeah no it's it's people that they meet and how they re- they react to them in really quite an appalling way um, oh God! I'm afraid, but but then but you know what Stephen Burkhoff's plays are like. I mean, they can be very cutting, and he he likes to cutting. They're like a punch in the yeah. face. Sometimes. They <laughs> really are. God, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what this is like. It is a punch in the face, and and some people will be quite shocked. But it obviously, it has to have that for the dramatic effect that we're trying to get yes. over. Right, I'm going to step away from that and go into a different track now because I'm going to start asking questions about the plot, and I don't want to do that because I want to count and see this as it is. Um, so the extracts from the film I have seen, and and obviously the trailer, it seems like it was filmed at the height of summer, and it's a day out for them. Was it filmed then? And if it wasn't, did that present any production challenges for you? Well, it did. I mean, we actually filmed it last February. Oh, good grief. So oh, can you imagine what, what we were thinking? Because it was the only time all the cars were available and it was literally do it in February or don't do it at all. And and we had no weather cover and the majority of the film takes place with them sitting outside by this pool, you know, in deck chairs. Uh, and we were just blessed with two weeks of, of wall-to-wall sunshine. So we oh, were fantastic. very lucky. I mean, so when are you making your next film? I'll book a holiday. <laughs> They'll probably all be inside. (laughs) (laughs) And and were the actors all fine with that? Because with the best will in the world to them, they're not young anymore. Were they okay with that? They were okay, but poor Leslie Sharp, had, particularly Leslie, had a very, very skimpy, thin sort of silk dress on. And she obviously, every time I said cut, you know, they put on all these coats and body warmers and hot water bottles on her lap to try and keep her warm. (laughs) (laughs) And fed her, you know, with with continuous hot chocolate and tea. (laughs) Sugar up. Yeah, so it it was, and there's one scene where she walks at the end of this pier. That was the only day that it was absolutely freezing and almost sleet. 
and she had this summer dress on. So that was a bit of a problem. But you know what actors are like. They don't come. They, well, these actors didn't. They were really professional. Nobody yeah. complained because they knew we had to get it done. You know? Yeah. And, you know, you got four of the top actors and actresses of Britain. So, uh, yeah, they're going to get on with it, aren't they? Yeah. And so on that subject of the actors and actresses, the film split into two time periods. One of those is the 60s, the time of the mods and rockets. Now, that makes an interesting connection because you've got Phil Davis, who's the first time I ever saw him on screen was in Quadrophenia. And was that connection intentional? It wasn't intentional, really. It was just coincidence. I mean, the, the part of Dave is kind of this sidekick character, and it's a really difficult part to cast because, you know, you know, most actors want to be confident and be the leader and the hero and, and all that. And we, and, we, and we had that in the Derek character. But as I say, Dave needed to be very quiet, but, but also quite threatening. Uh, in a subtle way. And, and I just, you know, I've always wanted to work with Phil Davis. I'd never worked with him before. So, you know, I offered him the role very soon. He said he'd love to do it. And, and that was that. So, no, it was just coincidence that was Quadrophenia link. You can guarantee that the press will be jumping on that one, don't you, when they review it? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, he was talking about it and the similarities, as you say, and the, you know, the mopeds and all that. But no, it's just, it's just a really nice coincidence. And it's great to see Leslie Sharp in the film. I, I think she's so underrated. I mean, great in the full Monty, and I loved her in Red Riding. But what was it like working with Leslie Sharp, other than the fact she was cold a lot of the time? <laughs> <laughs> well, really good. I mean, she came in, bless her, quite late on. We, we were, you know, like all films, there was a couple of delays on the production. I think, you know, I think we were supposed to go whenever it was, you know, last summer, and then it was supposed to be last autumn, and eventually we went in the winter. So... Phil Davis and, and Larry Lamb were attached very early on. Marion Bailey came on board quite early, and then we just couldn't cast this role. I think Leslie came on uh, literally about two weeks before we started shooting, so it was really nail-biting whether she'd agree to do it and whether she'd be available. So we were really fortunate. And she was no, she was really nice to work with. Uh, it was quite interesting when we were rehearsing. We did a couple of weeks' rehearsal you know, before we filmed it. And, but I think because the others had had a long time to think about it, they'd really got the characters down to a T. But because yeah. she'd you know, literally just come to it a couple of days before, it did require quite a lot of chat and group discussion and, and rehearsal to get, to get her character sort of solidified. But once she got it, she was just away and it was absolutely brilliant. That's interesting what you're saying, because with an ensemble piece like this, that rehearsal must have been quite important. It was extremely important, and, and it was so effective when we came to the first day's shooting, because everybody was so on point. You know, we were ahead of the crew all the time. I remember the first take, we did it. <laughs> the first day, D said, right, well, anything wrong with that? And I said, no, that was absolutely perfect. And we were almost ready to go into the second setup. So you know, of course, the cameraman said, oh, let's just do it again just for safety. So we did do a second take. But that that then sort of set the pace for the whole shoot, that the, the cast was so accurate and on it. We ended up finishing, I think, an hour early every day from the wrap time because um, they, they, got it, they got it perfectly. Brilliant. Brilliant. You were so lucky. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was. We have talked to a lot, a lot of directors who've said, oh, no, it was a nightmare. They'd never worked together and it was a lot of challenge. But wow. Yeah, well, that's a good point. And, and I think, as, as that fact, Mike Lee pointed out, because we showed the film in Denard, and he, he, he came to see the film over there in France. And, and he was, you know, very proudly pointing out that, that, as you said, they'd all worked together on Vera Drake, these actors. So they were all old friends, really. <laughs> and then you've got Larry Lamb. Now, I actually did meet Larry Lamb once, and he's like a force of nature, that guy. And he can go from light, as in Gavin and Stacey, to the darkness of EastEnders. 
is that nature of Larry Lamb, that force that is Larry Lamb, what attracted you to him for that character? Yeah, it was. And, 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 and the charisma. I mean, the part of Derek Need is somebody very, very charismatic and very full of himself <laughs> and uh, an authentic Cockney. And, and when you think about it, you know, there's not that many other people. I mean, we, we did talk about Ray Winston, but he wasn't available, you know, but other than sort of Ray Winston and, and Larry Lamb, there's not that many people who could pull it off, I don't think. So, of course, then when I met Larry, we had some lunch and he's, he's really interesting to talk to and, and mm. love the character. And, and in fact, you know, he said to me, it was, the be- it was one of the best roles he's ever done. So he, he was really pleased with the end result, I think. Oh, brilliant. Wow. What a compliment. Yes, yes it was. Last but certainly not least, Marion Bailey, who recently played the Queen Mother in season three of The Crown. I think this is a bit different for her, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, completely different. And and what was really funny was when we were rehearsing it, I think she was doing some filming of The Crown when she wasn't needed for rehearsal. So I mean, that was a, <laughs> a huge change. What a head shift. I wow. know. <laughs> oh, well, you know, don't get these roles mixed up. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'd have paid to watch her swearing as the Queen Mother. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, funnily enough, in Brighton, you know, actually Marion has the most swearing. It's just, just the way the characters are. <laughs> So it's a real <laughs> contrast to playing the Queen Mum. Oh, my gosh. Brilliant. You mentioned Mike Lee. And again, as we said, we said about Vera Drake. I noticed your composer is Gary Yershon, who uh, has done quite a lot for Mike Lee. Yeah, that's right. Again, we were, you know, looking around with various composers. We interviewed quite a few people, you know, like like you do, and listened to sort of uh, various ideas. And, and Gary was just part of that process. You know, I, I met him. We had a coffee. And you know, it, 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 again, I wasn't really thinking about what he'd done in the past because we saw other composers that had also done quite a lot of films and TV and, you know, were pretty experienced. But I just liked his take on it and, and his pitch about how we would approach the music and the characters and the sort of subtlety of his music, but still making it a comedy because it is ultimately a comedy. So that was it, really. So, again, it was just coincidence that he happened to be a good collaborator of Mike. Because you've got the two time periods, did he approach the music aspects of both of those time periods differently or did yeah. keep a common theme? No, no, he did. We, and we, we made a decision that, that principally it's rock and roll, you know, mo- most of the 50s and 60s, because obviously it's through the eyes of these characters when they were when they were in their late teens and early 20s. And that, and that was such a big part of their lives. So really almost all of the music in, in that period is rock and roll. And then it goes to much more sort of orchestral stuff for the present day soundtrack. Another thing I'm looking forward to listening, I do like Gary Yershon's music. It's deceptively simple when you listen to it. I mean, Another Year is an incredible score. So, uh, yeah, definitely looking forward to that. Now, you also mentioned the uh, Denard Film Festival, and you were, I believe, the closing film at that 30th uh, Denard Film Festival. Do you know what? I don't think it was the closing. I think it, it was It was part of the, the competition. You know, it was part of the main festival and and all that but i'm not i'm not sure if, i can't remember if it was the last film actually of the of the festival but it was what was lovely about that is it was so well supported because denard's been going for so many years uh, and they showed brighton throughout the week all the films there are actually shown i don't know about i don't know four or five times so oh, brilliant. you know it's so all the local audience get a chance and every screening we went to um it was like a full house uh, it was fantastic so that that was great to see the film and also, it, it wasn't dubbed, it was if subtitles. So again, we weren't sure if it was going to work. But the first screening we went to, everybody was laughing and, and liking it. So, um, so that, that gave us confidence. Looking at all the elements that I've seen of it, it's got 
British hit written all over it. So, uh, yeah, definitely, definitely looking forward to it. I hope so. Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm confident. Um, <laughs> finally on Brighton, now it's completed, Han has been seen by various festival audiences, and you've sat in with the audiences. What aspects of the film are you most pleased with? Um, I think it's difficult to say, really, because, you know, as the director, you know, you're looking at everything. <laughs> So it's a you know it's like an orchestra sort of every part of it is 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 important. I think it's a really natural performance that they gave, and I know that they knew each other before, but you know a lot of them hadn't worked together for twenty or five thirty years, and I just feel that with the rehearsal that we did and the kind of atmosphere that was on set, which was really creative and relaxed, that comes over. So I think that that that's what I'm most proud of is is just the the interaction between the characters and hopefully the reality of of, of their stories. And I imagine it must be a buzz watching a, a festival audience really get that and get those characters and laugh along or be shocked with them. Yeah, it was, absolutely. And, and as I say, when these people were saying about this is so timely and, and a, a really a film of our time, I mean, that would be wonderful, you know, to look back on this in, say, 20 years' time and go, yeah, you know, Brighton, that really captured 2020 or 2019. That would be fantastic for the film. So hopefully. <laughs> as I say, I'm really, really looking forward to that. That was the At The Flicks exclusive interview with Brighton director Stephen Cookson. As Leslie Sheldon mentioned at the beginning of the show, Brighton has been selected for the prestigious Closing Film Gala for the 2021 online Cheltenham International Film Festival. If you haven't got your tickets for the screening, I'd urge you to do so as soon as possible as Brighton is a brilliant British feature and well worth seeing. Also remember that you can get 25% discount if you apply the code ATF25 when booking. The screening and discount only applies to listeners in the UK. For everyone else, keep looking out for Brighton coming to your location. It's well worth the wait. That's it from me for now and see you at the flicks.